Rebecca. Good morning. How we doing? Good? We're here? Yes? Yay? We can interact. It's fine. Okay. I appreciate that. All right, guys. We all fixate on certain things, don't we? We have our favorite sports team, watching our kids as they lie in bed at night, making sure they're still breathing, the rise and fall of the stock market and how that impacts our retirement accounts, Taylor and Travis's whirlwind romance, right? It's so good, you guys. Um, it's great to like something, to be a fan, to have a hobby, and then there's a point where it crosses the line. Corella DeVille is obsessed with fur coats. She's so obsessed with them that she tries to buy Dalmatian puppies, and when their owners refuse, she steals them. This lady's name is literally Cruel Devil, and the animator who came up with her look designed her to be very thin with a huge fur coat as a visual representation of her obsession on wealth and opulence. Jay Gadsby is a hopeless romantic, deeply in love with a girl named Daisy. He spends years obsessing over her and accumulating insane amounts of wealth with the hope of one day winning her affection. Monica Geller is an OCD control freak driven by order and cleanliness. Gollum doesn't just casually want the one ring to rule them all, he is consumed by it. He calls it as precious. He's overcome by its power and beauty, and the ring becomes the only thing he lives for. And in the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, the wizard Gandalf says this about Gollum and the Ring of Power. He hated it and he loved it, as he hated and loved himself. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. We're in a season of Lent, and we're in a series called Life Beyond Sin. We're talking about the seven deadly sins, repentance and new life. And today we get to talk about the super fun and lighthearted sin of gluttony. I appreciate the nervous laughter. <laughs> we'll spend some time making sense of what it is, how it's at work, and has real consequences in our lives. As we acknowledge its grip on us and turn towards God, we get to receive God's gift of grace and through that, experience new life. Before we dive in, let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we do thank you that you care about every single aspect of our lives. So this morning, God, as we talk about some uncomfortable things, I pray that we would just pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. God, we want to open up our hands and our hearts and our minds and say, come and have your way. God, whatever your invitation is for each one of us this morning, we just want to say yes to looking a little bit more like you. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Amen. Okay, so what exactly is gluttony? When we think about gluttony, if we think about it at all, we may think about food and overeating. We live in a country with restaurants, grocery stores, coffee shops on bars on just about every corner. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us probably have some kind of problem with food. And while overeating is a part of gluttony, it's more like a symptom than a diagnosis. Gluttony means we want something more than we want God, and we take what we want, despite the consequences. It's something that consumes us. It's an obsession. St. Augustine said, the essence of sin is disordered love. 
Disordered love means we love less important things too much and more important things less than we should. Gluttony is the thing, the person, the title, the substance that festers in the center of our mind, body, and heart. So let's take a look at gluttony by reading a story in the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 7. So to give some context, the Israelites have escaped from Egypt, wandered in the desert for 40 years, and have finally spotted the promised land. The book begins after Moses has died and the Israelites finally get to enter this promised land as the walls of Jericho crumble to the ground. When Jericho falls, the riches of the city were brought to the Lord's temple. This is where all treasure was supposed to be taken. Their society had laws and extreme consequences about this. But some people saw this treasure and decided, enough is enough. How much does God need? Surely someone won't miss this, someone won't miss this little bit of war spoils over here. And this is where we meet a guy named Akan. At the beginning of chapter 7, the Israelites are about to head into a battle in a place called Ai. And this is where we pick up the story starting in verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Akan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with a devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had come forward, had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zarephites were chosen. 
We had the clan of the Zarephites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Akan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Akan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide from me. Akan replied, It's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Akan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Accor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Akan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Accor ever since. In this battle story, we see Akan doing something that caused not only a battle to be lost, but ultimately his own life too. So let's see what this can teach us about gluttony by taking another look at verses 19 through 21. Then Joshua said to Akan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Akan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. The word saw used here is a Hebrew word which could better be defined as behold, to gaze at something. We don't glance at a beautiful sunset, we gaze at it. Akan was beholding the treasure he wanted. And he's pretty specific about what he took. Most of us probably can't walk by a pile of silver and say, I think that's about 44 pounds. That gold bar, maybe 11. Akan had spent enough time with these treasures to know how much they weigh. We don't usually just start to fixate on something, though, do we? It starts with a look, and then another, and then another. And then our mind becomes focused, and those glances become gazes. After Akan saw and beheld these items, he says he coveted them. Covet means to adore or worship something, and we worship what we serve. Lastly, Akan said he took the treasures. He knew the rules, he knew the consequences, but the treasure had taken over his conscience and reasoning, and it became his precious, and he stole it. The treasure from Jericho was inanimate objects. They're neither good nor bad. Food can be good. Work can be good. Pleasure can be good. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it's taking the place of God in our lives. Consuming created things to fill a void that only the one who created those things can fill, this is our sin of gluttony. 
Another way of thinking of gluttony is through the lens of something called a broken well. Jeremiah 2, verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The things we look at that hold our gaze, that we covet, that we take, are false substitutes for the real source of life that's worth living. We try to fill ourselves, our wells, with things we think will bring satisfaction and wholeness. But those cisterns can't hold water. They're leaky because the hole inside of ourselves is leaky. The things we put our stuff in is limited. So now that we maybe have a working definition of gluttony, let's do the tough work of making it personal and addressing it in our own lives. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, we meet a character named Edmund. And Edmund meets a witch in the magical land of Narnia. This witch gives him a box of candy called Turkish Delight, and she's enchanted it to be especially addictive. She does this so that Edmund will become so desperate for more of this candy that he would be willing to do anything for her. Our God is whatever we obey. It's our addiction. Is it food? a better paying job, achievement or recognition, gambling, the shoes we see in the store window or sweater our stylish friend is wearing, our super cute married coworker we keep hoping will notice us and imagine what our life would be like if we were with them. Or maybe we've had a terrible day at work, surely one more drink won't be a big deal. And that high we felt, that liquid courage we experience after two beers now takes four. We only take one Delta 9 gummy a day and look forward to taking it again tomorrow. What's the big deal? We manipulate our spouse to have sex with us because we say it's their job to meet our needs. The things we consume can seem as though they're magically enchanted. We want them more and more. What's our Turkish delight? What can't we get enough of? Left to run free, eventually our desires and obsessions will overtake our fear of consequences. How do I spend my time, my money? Is there anything in my thoughts that I obsess about or overly focus on? And some of our disordered desires are really obvious. We can see the results in our lives. We go to the doctor and we're told to cut back, to eat healthier, to exercise more. We drive home, buzz, gripping the steering wheel and grateful we made it without causing an accident or running off the road. We get our credit card statement and see that we're way overspending. Let me be clear, this isn't meant to guilt or shame any of us. We need to recognize and come to grips with the unhealthy relationship we have with certain things in our lives. Our obsession with eating doesn't only have to be with eating too much. Sometimes it's not eating enough because we're obsessed with how we look. Or we binge eat to the point where we're miserable and then we throw it up. Our eating can become disordered as we stare at the super skinny performers we observe in the spotlight and feel defeated because we know we'll never have the level of self-control they do to look like that. So when I was in college, I was in a pretty unhealthy relationship that I didn't feel like I had a lot of control over. And I dealt with it by taking control in other areas of my life I felt like I could control. So in the morning, 
I would skip breakfast, I would go to the gym, run about 10 miles, I would then work out doing strength training stuff for another 30 minutes. I would go to the grocery store to buy myself lunch, and I would buy those Lean Cuisine frozen meals. But I always had to look on the back and see how many calories there were. I gave myself a limit. It was 250 calories or less. Anything more than that, I wouldn't buy. That's what I had for lunch. And then for dinner, it was whatever myself as a you know, struggling college student could afford, maybe Taco Bell or Arby's or something like that. I wasn't eating enough, and I did my best to ensure I wasn't eating enough to gain weight. I was starving myself. I was in a chaotic relationship that felt out of control, but I could control my body. And that relationship ended up in marriage and then ended up in divorce. But a part of me admittedly felt elated when I saw how skinny I was because I was so stressed out during that divorce that I'd stopped eating. To this day, I have to bring what I eat and why I'm eating it to God more often than I'd like to admit. I do think I've come a long way, but I also believe my struggle with disordered eating may last the rest of my life. Why are we drinking? Why are we overeating? Why do we feel great when we're sick and that makes us lose a few pounds? Our problem isn't necessarily the food, alcohol, clothes, money. They're symptoms of the condition of our heart. Philippians 3, verses 18 through 19 say, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. A destiny of destruction and our stomach, our consumption as our God. A Khan's sentence was death. He was killed. And he knew that was the price. But his gaze overtook him. When we finally recognize what has our attention, what the thing is we gaze at or overindulge in, how do we get out of it? Hebrews 4, 15, we have a high priest, Jesus, who can feel it when we are weak and hurting. We have a high priest, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. But he did not sin. Jesus gets it because he was also tempted, but he did not ever sin. And maybe we're thinking, okay, I can see the things in my life that hold my gaze. I'll just stop looking at them. I'll stop spending any time thinking about them and everything will be fine. Jesus was tempted and didn't sin. And since we're supposed to be like Jesus, I'll just try harder to be like Jesus. It's not that simple, is it? I don't know about you, but my willpower is so limited. I can't stop doing something without replacing it with something else. We're slaves to our consumption. Instead, we can address our gluttony head on through repentance. When we repent, we turn away from our sinful, disordered loves and turn towards God. And as we do this, we exchange our own limited willpower for God's unlimited resources. This is why diets don't work, why trying harder to quit smoking doesn't work. When we try in our own strength, we can be strong for a little bit, but eventually we give in again. 
because we're focusing on the wrong thing. Our sin is still an idol. I have to unhook my focus on this thing and by focusing on something else instead. There's no way we can do this in our own strength. Some of us maybe have more than others, but all of our willpowers are limited. The way to find new life is through God's amazingly beautiful gift of grace. Grace is something that we don't deserve. It's so much bigger than my willpower, than my desire to quit, to start fresh tomorrow. Today will be the last time, I promise. Grace overcomes our desires as we recognize that we are not our own. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. We are a temple. Our body is like a church. If you're in person with us right now, you're in a church. Let's imagine you came into church this morning and there was graffiti all over the walls and not like the cool artsy stuff, the ugly bad stuff, coffee mugs smashed everywhere, communion juice and crumbs all over the place and coffee sticking to the bottom of your feet as you were walking to your chairs. This wouldn't feel great, would it? We intentionally care for, mop, clean, repair, and throw away trash in our church building. We treat this building so much, more, so much better than we treat our bodies. Our bodies are like a church, a temple of the Holy Spirit. God says that they're sanctified, set apart as holy. Our desires come back into order when we recognize there's nothing we can do to change how accepted, loved, and adored we really are. When we realize who we are and whose we are, it changes how we treat ourselves. God beholds us, you and me, and we get to exchange our limited willpower for God's never-ending grace. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. We experience grace as we come to God and admit we can't give up on our obsessions on our own. And then we can say, and yet because you call my body a temple, because you say I am set apart as your home, because I am invited into your presence. And God, I invite you to set the Holy Spirit loose in me to use my time, my resources, my mind, and my heart for your glory. This, friends, is our gift of new life. So something practical that we can do to practice turning away from our sin of gluttony is to consider fasting. The point of fasting is to eliminate distractions and grow closer to God. And we're in a season of fasting right now. It's Lent. But you might be thinking, we're too far into Lent. I can't start now. It's never too late to start. Or maybe you've already broken your Lenten fast. You can restart any time. One year, I gave up all drinks except for water, and then I went to a restaurant and forgot and got myself a Pepsi, and then I gave up on my fast. I wish someone had said, you can just say oops and start over again. Instead, I just felt terrible and that I'd messed it up yet again. 
And I'd also highly suggest if you have disordered eating as a part of your story, talk with your doctor or therapist and probably fast something other than food. We have fasting guys out in the lobby. Consider picking up one of those to help you get started. It's also important to note that not all addictions can be overcome by just repenting and turning towards God on our own. Some of us need to realize that there are times where we need outside help. We can't overcome our addictions without support from trusted friends or professional intervention. Addictions have a real chemical impact on the chemistry of our brains and bodies. God absolutely uses external resources to heal and bring new life. Those outside supports are a source of grace. They can be a gift in our lives. If you feel trapped by an addiction and need some resources, please reach out. Talk to myself or another one of our pastors, and we will confidentially help you find the tools you need to start the road of recovery. Getting outside help is the bravest thing some of us will ever do. Okay, back to Lent. Something I love about Lent is that the countdown is wrong. Have you noticed that? Lent is supposed to be the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, but that's not actually true. It's 46 days. And that's because Sundays aren't counted. Sundays, in the church history liturgical sense, are a break from focusing on our sin as we're invited to shifting our attention to the anticipation of the celebration that's to come on Easter Sunday. Because Sunday is the day that Jesus came back to life. It can't be anything other than a day of joy and celebration, even in the midst of a season where we're focused on our sin. Celebration day, though, not cheat day, right? But also, I mean, if you want to make it a cheat day, that's fine. That's up to you. You decide how you fast. Easter, though, is God's ultimate gift of new life. We get a savior. We get someone who lived a perfect life to pay the ridiculously high price of our sin so that what happened to a con would never have to happen to any of us. We deserve death. Our sins of obsession, fixation, addiction, and disordered love show us that. And yet, we're given an incredible gift. As Jesus puts it in John 10.10, I have come so that they can have life. I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. Today, we're going to celebrate by baptizing some folks. And what a day to celebrate baptism as we talk about gluttony, huh? (laughs) I actually love that this is what we're talking about because baptism is a chance for us to publicly acknowledge that we have disordered loves in our lives. Baptism is our symbolic way of saying, I see how I've lived a life of sin, and that hasn't worked. And I want to publicly acknowledge my need to exchange my willpower for God's gift of new life. I choose to turn away from my sin, make God the center of my life, and accept his free gift of grace through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So if you're getting baptized this morning, would you make your way up front? And as they come up, let me share some, exer- um, some encouragement about baptism for the rest of us. If you've already committed your life to Jesus and have been baptized, today's celebration can be a chance to reflect on what that means to you 
and to consider how your relationship with Jesus is going right now. We typically only get baptized once in water, but being friends with Jesus is something we get to experience every single day. How is your relationship with him going right now? What about your relationship with him can you celebrate today? Some of us haven't been baptized before. And maybe you're saying to yourself as you're watching these guys come up, I'm in. This is exactly what I want to do in my own life as a next step with Jesus. I see my sin. I want to repent, to turn from my disordered loves, and to publicly say that I want God to be the center of my life. We celebrate baptism several times a year, and you can absolutely plan for a future date. Or you can get baptized today. We have plenty of towels and a change of clothes for you. Maybe this is an invitation for right now. If that's you and you'd like to consider getting baptized today, you can come up and chat with John. He's right over here, and he'd be happy to set you up to do that. Okay, for those of you that are getting baptized, I have some questions for you. Are you ready? Yes? All right, we're going to do it. Don't worry, I'm going to ask you something, and I'm going to tell you what to say. It's super simple, yeah? We got it? Okay. First question, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord and King, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life and grace? If so, answer, I do. Good job. Next question. Do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his ways? If so, answer, I do. Do you confess your need for the forgiveness of sins and with a humble heart put your hope in God's mercy and your whole trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, answer, I do. And with his help, do you seek to follow him, becoming more like him until you see him face to face? If so, answer, I do. All right, you guys can make your way over to the side. And while they do that, in-person and online friends, would you join me in praying for these folks? God, we thank you for baptism. We thank you for the opportunity to publicly say, God, I want to turn away from my disordered loves and I want to turn towards you. God, my life is yours. I pray for each one of these that today would be like putting a stake in the ground of saying, today is the day where I said in a public way, I surrender. The way I've been doing things haven't been working. And so God, today I trust you and your gift of new life. And that is where I want to walk the rest of the days of my life. Amen. Again, if you are considering getting baptized right now, you are absolutely welcome to do that and come right over here and have a conversation. And while we do that, we're going to get ready and we're going to baptize these guys. Oh, please stand up. Stand up for worship. We're going to celebrate together. Woo! Can we give another round of applause? I love baptism so much. So good, so good. You know, when we get to watch things like this, there's something that can kind of get, you guys can have a seat for a second. We're going to be heading into some ministry time here. And just as we do this, we're going to take a little bit of a deep breath because, again, maybe we're starting to notice that things are being stirred up in us. 
And so we're going to transition into something called ministry time. And this is a chance for us to respond some either some things that you heard during the message or just things that maybe you're becoming present to as you've been watching baptisms. I want to start by just inviting our prayer ministry team to come to the front. There are some things that I think God might be highlighting this morning. I think one of those things might be that some of us are invited into the courageous act of admitting our disordered loves to someone else. Some of us know what they are, but we haven't actually admitted it to anyone else. If this is something that you resonate with, I'd love to invite you to come up to the front and someone can pray for you. Or if you're online with us, you can click on the request prayer button. I think there are some other things. Um, maybe even as you were listening to the message, I wondered if some of us were maybe thinking, dang, did Becca just read my mail? I listed some thoughts, some obsessions, because they're actually way more common than we realize. Sometimes keeping us isolated in our shame and guilt is the way the enemy lies to us and keeps us thinking we're alone, that no one will understand. You are not alone. Most, many more people than you realize think like you. If this is you, I'd also like to invite you to come forward for prayer. And maybe again, as we were watching some folks respond to baptism this morning, you're considering if you surrendered your life to God. You're looking at your disordered loves in your life and thinking, maybe enough really is enough. The way I've been doing things isn't working. Surely there's something more to life than this. Well, there absolutely is. God wants to offer us his gracious gift of new life through Jesus. I'd like to invite you guys to stand. If you'd like to consider surrendering your mind, body, and heart to God, would you consider praying this prayer with me right now? God, I admit I fixate on things that aren't you. I'm so sorry. Please help me turn from my obsessions and turn my focus towards you. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I deserve, the price Akan had to pay. Today I choose to accept Jesus as the Christ, as my Messiah and Savior, and I give myself over as a holy temple for you to care for and use for your will and purposes in my life. Amen. If that's you, I also want to invite you up forward to get some prayer. We also have a packet we can give you that really talks about what does it look like to be friends with Jesus, to really surrender your life to him in some practical ways. Otherwise, stay, linger, worship. Consider maybe in a personal sense how God is inviting you to respond this morning. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining us.